Good afternoon, church. My name is Jonathan Ellis. I'm pleased again to speak to you once more. Uh, the last sermon of our series of called Summer Sessions. If you've hated this series, uh, take heart. Pastor Al will resume next week with Timothy. Um, and also, if you'll just if you'll indulge me, uh, I have a request. I was informed uh, that I, I spoke softly last week, as as is my pattern. So forgive me, first of all. But second, if you are a Christian, you're my brother and sister, and family and siblings can speak openly to one another, so I would ask that if I descend, you can just say this, and, and if I can see you, I can't see all of you because of the lights, but if I can see you, that would help me. And if you're not a Christian, you're still my neighbor, and I love you, and so you have the freedom to do that as well. Um, but again, it is my honor to handle God's Word and service to His people this afternoon, and so... Would you also please pray with me and for me as we dive into a text? Um, Father, you have chosen for yourself a weak people in order to shame the strong and a foolish people in order to shame the wise, and I am feeling both of those right now. But your word is powerful and your spirit is powerful, um, and you are sanctifying your people and advancing your kingdom in spite of us. So would you please advance your kingdom this afternoon? Let us leave more like Jesus. Um, hide me behind the text. Protect me from error. Let us all, myself included, benefit from the power of your word. Protect us just if, if anything is not from you, that you would protect all of us, including myself, from that as well. And again, that your name would just be glorified when this is done. We love you so very, very much. It's in your son's name. Amen. The primary passage for today is Romans 8, verses 35 through 39. Romans 8, 35 through 39. If you have your Bible, would you please turn there now? And if you do not have a Bible, our ushers have some that you can use. And if you don't have one, please take this home as our gift and read it. Give you a minute. All right. Romans 8, 35 through 39. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the Word of God. Just to remind us where we are in this sermon series, for the past couple of months we've talked about the central importance of sound doctrine. And the importance of, of being confident in it in order to fight against false teaching and how to withstand temptation, particularly the temptations towards anxiety, worry, and fear. And last week I attempted to give you confidence in the weapon that God has given you to fight so that you can stand firm against the false teachings that surround us. The winds of trial and temptations to anxiety and fear and worry. And I want to continue that effort today as we finish up this mini-series um, with this specific passage. I believe our specific passage today is an incredibly powerful weapon in dealing with trial, with worry, anxiety, and fear if we understand it correctly. So that's what our, our goal is today. Let me tell you where we're going specifically. The main principle that I believe this passage testifies to is this. Patterns of fear and anxiety are not primarily caused by circumstances but are caused primarily by what you have placed your hope and your trust in. Let me repeat that. Patterns of fear and anxiety are not primarily caused by circumstances, but primarily caused by what you have placed your hope and your trust in. If this is true, and I believe it is, then the goal for the Christian's life is to have their faith in the bedrock of God's promises, and in so doing, be firmly anchored when the winds of difficult circumstances, pain, and trial blow against you and tempt you to fear. 
So let's begin jumping into the passage. An important first step in examining any passage of Scripture is to examine its context. Uh, To do this, we must consider, for our passage today, we must consider Romans 8 as a whole and consider the larger argument that the Spirit, through Paul, is forming in it. That way we can see which part our particular passage plays in his argument. Verses 31 through 39, where our passage is found, are the result of a conclusion which he has reached, following an argument he makes earlier in the chapter, uh, specifically verses 26 through 30. And while I'd love to get into the entirety of that section, for our purposes today, we'll focus on the heart of his argument there, which I believe is found in verses 28 and 29. Let's read them. They'll be on the screen. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For, pay attention to that word, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Romans 8, 28 through 29. So, so pay attention to that word for. Whenever you see a for or a, a therefore in connection between two sentences or idea, it connects two sentences or two ideas. One of my old pastors used to say that you should always ask yourself, what is the therefore, therefore? Uh, But anyway, back to the passage. Doesn't verse 29 bear a remarkable resemblance to the promises of our main text? Romans 8, 28 says that God works all things together for good for those who love God and are called according to His purpose. And in our main passage, it says that though we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered, we are more than conquerors. So the reason I drew your attention to the four is the four at the beginning of verse 29 tells us why all things can be considered good for the believer. It is so that each believer will be, quote, conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Do you see the flow of this reasoning? We must if we're to understand this passage properly. So let's repeat it, the, the, the connection. Because God's ultimate plan for the believer is to conform you to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many believers, that's verse 29. Because that is true, that is why it can be said that God works all things together for good for those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. That's verse 28. And by enacting this plan, God will be glorified. Right? The ultimate end of all of this is so that in the new heaven and the new earth, it will be filled with countless individuals all mirroring the glory of Jesus, exhibiting Jesus, demonstrating the goodness and holiness of Jesus. Do you see why that's a wonderful and wondrous goal and why it brings God so much glory? So that's the end goal, but how is it that God gets us there? He does that through what is known as the process of sanctification. And all that word means is the process of progressively making you more like Jesus. So now that we've discovered God's end goal, the larger purpose of this Romans 8 argument, the rest of our main passage can be more easily understood. Because when you don't see that ultimate goal in all this, then you might at first glance say verse 28 and our main passage seem utterly contradictory. You might say, Jonathan, how can, it, how can you possibly say my being killed all the day long and being regarded as a sheep to be slaughtered could possibly be God working all things together for my good? But when you realize that God's primary goal for the believer is our sanctification for the glory of God, we can take our first steps toward understanding how these passages fit together. When we see that sanctification is God's purpose for His people and not our best life now or peace and affluence in this lifetime, then suddenly the other portions, the other pieces make sense and fit together. And I don't say this to to hurt your feelings, but if you think that God's primary goal for your life is comfort, control, power, or affluence, you will not understand these passages. If your goal is to just have a certain kind of romantic relationship, a certain number of kids, a good career, a nice retirement fund, and to live in peace and comfort and have people leave you alone for the rest of your life, how will being slaughtered like a sheep help me do that, you may ask? It won't. But none of those were ever God's ultimate goal for you if you claim to be a Christian. 
He wants so much more for you than that. So we must fix in our mind what God's primary goal is in this passage, and that may mean abandoning our own preconceived notions of what we think the primary purposes of our life should be, even though those might be purposes that tradition or the culture you grew up in might have informed. So let's return to Romans 8 as a whole. Because sanctification of the believer for the glory of God is God's ultimate purpose for each of us, Paul is able to make many triumphant and glorious proclamations in this chapter despite the perils and trials the believer will face. For instance, in verses 31 and 32, it'll be on the screen, Paul notes, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Furthermore, in in verses 16 and 17, Paul says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may be also be glorified with him. Do you see what the Spirit through Paul is attempting to convince us of? Because God has a plan for believers, a magnificent plan, an eternal plan, a God-honoring plan, we will, He will see it to through fruition and nothing will prevent it, even great danger or trial or pain. Indeed, He will likely use great danger or trial or pain in order to conform us to Christ. Let me repeat that. Because God's primary goal for the believer is to conform them into the image of Christ, He will lead you into trial, difficulty, and pain in service of that purpose. And if you doubt that God does that, I would point you to your, your attention to Matthew 4.1, where it is written explicitly that Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Who was He led by? The Spirit. In order to be tempted in order to prepare him for his ministry and to, to, to begin his ministry. If we claim to be children of God, then we should not be surprised that the Father treats us in the same way as our big brother Jesus. The reason God is leading you into trials and difficulties and pain is so that you can learn to trust him more, delight in him more, know him more, and that in so doing, you will be sanctified. And this is why the author can confidently state in Romans 8.28, God works all things together for good for those who love God and are called, into, called according to His purpose. Furthermore, that is why he can conclude his overarching argument of Romans 8 with our main passage. Let's read it again. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword... As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why does he end the chapter like this? Some might read this and think it is gruesome and morbid, but I think the last point of this chapter is intended to be testimonial. We see from 2 Corinthians 11, 24-27 that the Apostle Paul personally suffered all of this and more. These weren't theoretical, abstract ideas. He had the stripe, stripes upon his back. He suffered the whippings, the stoning, the shipwreck, the exposure, and the hunger. So he begins this passage in order to write to Christians who are enduring that same level of persecution that they might understand that he's speaking as one who has personally suffered all of this. And so the audience will see him as credible when he makes uh, his argument in the rest of the passage. He then cites to Psalm 44.22, For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Psalm 44 is a lament following a great defeat in in battle in Israel's history. Um, Please turn there now and we will read specifically verses 9 through 19. We we need to visit it just briefly if we're to understand the, the point that he uses it for in Romans 8. 
And as you're turning, the main idea I want you to see as I read through this, the psalmist is lamenting the tragedy of the defeat God's people have suffered, but at the same time, the psalmist still recognizes the sovereign hand of God in it. Let's repeat that so that you can see it as I read. The psalmist laments the tragedy of the defeat of God's people, but at the same time, he recognizes the sovereign hand of God in it. And and just making an aside, it is okay to lament tragedy and mourn pain, but it cannot rule us. It can't become our identity or our new God. And we'll, we'll elaborate on that more later, but, but it is okay to mourn and it is okay to lament. Okay, let's begin in verse 9. But you have rejected us and disgraced us and have not gone out with our armies. You, he's speaking to God, You have made us turn back from the foe and those who hate us have gotten spoil. You have made us like sheep for slaughter and have scattered us among the nations. You have sold your people for a trifle, demanding no high price for them. You have made us the taunt of our neighbors, the derision and scorn of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. All day long my disgrace is before me and shame has covered my face. At the sound of the taunter and reviler, at the sight of the enemy and the avenger, all this has come upon us, that we have not forgotten you, and we have not been false to your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your ways, yet you have broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. Consider that while the author ascribes all of these actions to God, the promises of God towards Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were still to be fulfilled. In spite of the tragic circumstances, God was still working a plan of redemption in His wayward and sinful people. Indeed, when you follow the history of Israel throughout Scripture, it is a constant cycle of God's people being led astray by idols. They then pursue them. Then God gives His people over to their idols and they can see how empty they are. They feel the pain and effects of how empty they are. Ruin ensues, but then the ruin leads to repentance. And his people come back to God. So we see God use tragedy in order to redeem and instruct his chosen people. That's why I do not think it's any accident that this passage from Psalm 44 is what the author chose to cite as part of the larger Romans 8 argument. But the psalmist, after describing all of the tragic circumstances, concludes near the end of the chapter in Psalm 44.22 with the passage which Paul specifically cites in Romans 8. Yet for your sake we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. I believe the author cites to this verse 22 in particular because it demonstrates that God is sovereign and working for a good purpose. That purpose being the redemption of His people even and perhaps especially in the midst of painful and tragic circumstance. And I want you to hear that so I'm going to repeat it. I believe the Spirit-inspired author cites to Psalm 44 here in order to demonstrate that God is always sovereign and always working for a good purpose, that purpose being the redemption of His people, even and perhaps especially in the midst of painful and tragic circumstances. And because God is sovereign, despite all the tragic circumstances, Paul can end his argument with a final conclusion. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. And that's not a phrase that we encounter day to day. So the bulk of our time is unpacking what that phrase means. What does it mean to say when facing painful and tragic circumstances that in all these things we are more than conquerors? What what does that mean? As we saw last week, uh, following the example of our Lord, we use Scripture to interpret Scripture. And the two passages, which I believe most clearly, clearly illustrate what this phrase means is Daniel 3, 15 through 18 and Philippians 1, 21. We'll start with Daniel 3, 15 through 18. Um, would you please turn there now? But if you'd prefer not, it'll be on the screen. Daniel 3, 15 through 18. And while you're turning, just some background. Uh, this, this passage is an account of a time after Israel had been conquered by a foreign power. Some young men had been taken captive back to a foreign land and the foreign king who had conquered Israel had issued a law that said that everyone in the nation must bow down to a statue of the king and worship him as God. And if they didn't, they would be put to death, burned alive. 
Three young Israelites refused and were brought before the king and he gave them one last chance. This is what he said to them. Follow along with me and beginning in verse 15. Now if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this manner. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not... Be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image you have set up. But if not, I think the Romans 8 passage tells us what the principle is, but I love this passage in Daniel because it illustrates it in such a practical way how the principle is played out. What happened here? The head of the state, the one who holds as much authority as the secular mind can conceive of, commanded these men to blaspheme. And in front of the instrument of death, he was threatening them with. Could, we, could their circumstances get any worse? Not really. Um, yet what, what is their response? Um, I see three. First, they express the reason they will not comply with this temptation to sin. That reason being a superior faith in God's provision and sovereign plan. Second, they had peace. You can see that they were calm yet uncompromising throughout the interaction. But the third, which is, just astounds me, but they were also, they note that even if God chose, chooses not to, to save them from this circumstance, they will still trust Him to a greater degree than the circumstance threatening them. So let's break down each of these responses. First, they refused to comply with the demand of the temptation. And you'll notice this is in contrast to the world around them, which was bowing down to the demand. The rest of the empire likely didn't truly believe this king was God. They were just going along out of fear of death, fear of the opinions of men, perhaps political advancement, um, perhaps out of lack of fear of the true God. But despite that, the rest of the world choosing wrongly, these faithful men said no. The reason they did not bow was a superior trust in the protection and provision of their God. Their actions revealed where their faith and hope resided. They trusted that God was more powerful than this incredibly powerful king, and it informed their action. Why did they think God would deliver them, just practically speaking? Because they had the scriptures. Have you ever thought of that? I mean, it was just the, it was the Torah at this point. They, they didn't have the full revelation of God that we are privileged to have. And yet, despite having only a, a limited number of books um, which testified to the covenants of God and His goodness and faithfulness to His people, that was enough. They stood on that. These books testified about God's promises of steadfast love towards His people. And he had commanded his people to not bow down to anyone other than him. These men had faith in the power of God, testified to in their scriptures over the power of the king. Secondly, they had peace. You can see this from the fact that they were able to, to converse and, and, and be calm yet uncompromising and even respectful when speaking to the king. Um, and I'll, I'll just, I'll, I'm not always the best at this, but, but how do you react you know, when, when the trial comes, our reactions in a trial often reveal where our true hope um, and trust is placed. I, I can say um, all day that my ultimate trust is in God, but then when I melt down because I get passed over for a promotion at work, doesn't that show that perhaps my true hope and trust lay in the value, how much I valued the opinions of men more than God? Or if I lose it when my day didn't go as planned, doesn't that show that perhaps I was trusting in my own ability to schedule and plan the day? Then trust that God is sovereign and He knew the interruptions that I would encounter that day? I'm not saying you can never be sad or that there is no use in scheduling. What I'm saying is that typically how you react in the moment when something goes wrong usually reveals something about where you are placing your trust and your hope and your value. Um, one frequent analogy that, that many of the men at the church here have, have used is, 
you're carrying around a big open cup and then you get bumped and, and hot coffee spills on you and burns you and you get upset. The, the bump didn't put the, the scalding liquid in your cup. You did that. The bump simply re revealed what you were carrying around in your cup. Um, so, so I think that it's useful for us to examine how do we react when, when these types of, of trials and circumstances come up because it will reveal where your trust and hope was. So, so just practically, you know, what's in your cup? Is it trust in God, joy in God, satisfaction in God, or is it trust in your intellect or strength? Joy in possessions or relationship status, satisfaction that you believe you will have if your plan is achieved. The third response these men had, they had faith that even if their desired outcome didn't arrive, they would be fine because they trusted in God, even if they didn't necessarily understand His full mind in the circumstance. Notice that they didn't presume upon God here. If you grew up in circles where the prosperity gospel was preached, I'd ask you to pay attention to this particular point. You cannot have faith in something God has not said. Consider the example of Abraham. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. God had made a specific promise, specific covenants with Abraham. And though they seemed highly unlikely, given Abraham's circumstances, Abraham believed them despite those circumstances. And it informed his action. The text does not show any specific promises made from God to these men that he would surely deliver them from the furnace. But they had faith in the covenant God had made with their ancestors and testified to in Scripture. That God would make His chosen people more numerous than the stars in the sky. That God was faithful and good and just. They had the testimony of God's working against Pharaoh, so they knew that the power of God was greater than that of any earthly ruler. So they trusted in the power of God over the power of men. And they knew what God had said in His Scripture, you shall not bow down to any graven image or worship any other God before Me. They believed He would therefore save them from the king, but even if He chose not to, they would still not disobey their God, even if it killed them, because they trusted in the goodness of His nature over that of the, the imminent danger of their present circumstance. They're expressing supreme faith here. Because they're saying that even if God chooses not to save them, save their lives, they will still trust the word of God and obey the word of God over the word of the king. And you see this a few other places in scripture. First of all, you see this type of faith in Job where he says, though he slay me, I will hope in him. Job 13, 15. And we see it even clearer in Jesus in the garden the night before he was crucified. Jesus knew from the beginning that it was the Father's plan to put the Son to death for the sins of many. And yet He submitted to the will of the Father, believing the Father's plan best. This is why you see Him pray in the garden, if possible, let this cup be taken from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but Thine. Perhaps none of you have ever, ever seen that verse or considered that. It was the Father's will to crush His Son. We see that explicitly in, in Isaiah 53.10. That passage is a prophecy concerning Jesus and it says there, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. You see Jesus affirm this when he says, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down and the authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. It was the father's will and the father's plan to crucify the son. And Jesus said, if possible, let this cup be taken from me. But then he said, not my will, but thine. Can I pause and bring up a practical point here? The Father's good plan for the Son involved immense suffering. But it was for the good of the Son that he would receive all glory and honor and praise. And Jesus trusted in the good plan of the Father. Jesus did ask, if possible, let this cup be taken from me. But then he said, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Is that your attitude toward trial and pain? The potential pain you may face for following Jesus. And if not, can you examine if your plans for your life align with God's plans for your life? Jesus' ultimate goal was not to escape pain, but to do the will of his Father, even if it led straight into pain and suffering. Okay, we've seen what this passage proclaims and I want to move into what can we learn practically from this? How can this inform how we 
attempt to follow Jesus. Let's return back to the thesis uh, or main idea. Patterns of fear and anxiety are not merely are not primarily caused by circumstances, but by how we react to them and what you have placed your hope and your trust in. Do you see why I'm arguing that in light of this passage? These men were facing exactly what Paul was describing in Romans 8. One can scarcely think of circumstances more dire, and yet they are not melting in fear or consumed by anxiety. We've examined why they were not. We've seen the positive case. But, but do you respond like them? When you only have 10 hours of daylight to work, but there are 20 hours of tasks on your to-do list, do you respond like them? When your relationship doesn't go the way you wanted it to, when your job doesn't recognize your contribution, when your spouse or children don't seem to appreciate you, when your latest service project didn't leave you as fulfilled as you thought it should, when you failed at something you really, really tried at, when ministry doesn't go like you thought. And if not, why? What is informing your reaction? Why are your immediate circumstances holding such a powerful hold on your day-to-day -day disposition and hope? And I think the short answer is that our circumstances, if we find ourselves in this situation, the short answer um, is that our circumstances seem like the primary cause of our fear and anxiety because unfortunately, we see them as more real, more imminent, and more powerful than the promises of God. I'm going to repeat that. I think the reason our circumstances seem to loom so large and keep many of us in a perpetual state of fear anxiety or dissatisfaction is because we see our circumstances as more real, trustworthy, and powerful than the promises of God that He will deliver us through those circumstances. Let me elaborate. In my time as a small group discussion leader and counselor, I found there are three very common reasons circumstances seem bigger than God in a Christian's perspective. Um, the first reason is you are ignorant of the promises of God. And I'm not saying that as an insult. You just don't know God's word well enough to stand on the tremendous promises contained there. This isn't a condemnation. It's, it's fixable. I'm simply stating a fact. You cannot exert faith on a promise you don't know the nature of. You can't believe in the promises of God for you if you don't know what those promises are. And despite what the prosperity gospel would claim, you cannot just make up promises on your own and then act like God has an obligation to deliver on them. Rather, Scripture reveals that the proper order of things is God speaking a promise and you believing it. This is the simplest expression of faith as we've seen. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, Genesis 15.6. If you believe God's promises, God's promises, not promises you've made up, if you believe God's promises and you hold fast to those promises, even when circumstances in the world tell you that they are empty, that is the fight of faith. That is how you are commanded to wage war if you are a Christian. To that end, I'd simply ask, are you in the Word? Do you believe in the importance of regularly consuming the Word to the degree that Jesus did? That's why I touched on this last week and, and want to elaborate on it a little bit more. But Jesus said, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Do you live in such a way that you believe him when he says that? And again, I, I think I asked this last week, practically speaking, let me ask you, is this sermon your primary scriptural meal this week? I think that there, as I, as I said, I think there are many Christians who are spiritually starving to death and utterly weak because they aren't regularly consuming the Word of God like Scripture says we must. If your child ate 90% candy and 10% meat and veggies, you'd be horrified, right? But how much information do you consume in a week through social media, news, podcasts, books that is, is as insubstantial as candy and compare that percentage to how much in a given week you are consuming the things of God and do you wonder why you are starving and spiritually sick, overcome with anxiety, the state of the world, or your life? What you consume will impact how you view the world and your day-to-day -day perspective. For God's Word says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Matthew 6.21 Therefore, what you spend your time and talent and treasure on shows what you value most. 
what informational sources you value most and trust most. That is why we're also commanded to dwell and on and consume that which is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, and commendable. That's from Philippians 4, 8 through 9, which Pastor Alex spoke on a couple of weeks ago. And as I said last week, I fear that for many Christians, this Sunday sermon is the only meal you'll get. And I don't say that to cause you guilt. I say that in order to exhort you to change that. That's fixable. You need regular, frequent feeding or you will be more vulnerable when the enemy seeks to attack you with temptation, anxiety, or fear. What's more, I would ask, how can you stand on the promises of God if you don't know them? You can't. So learn what God has promised for His chosen people and rest in it. The second reason I commonly see as to why circumstances may seem bigger than God is maybe you are familiar with the promises of Scripture regarding protection and provision, but perhaps you just don't want to rely on them. Um, I know that sounds nonsensical, but, but this is very common. I've seen it in church circles, and it's probably the reason that I personally struggle with the most. What I mean is you recognize on some level that you are insufficient in your own strength for the task facing you, and you recognize, therefore, that you need help, but you don't want to rely on another you don't want to rely on a power or source of strength outside of yourself. Instead of stopping and praying because you recognize you can't do it on your own, you would rather pour that time into putting yourself in a position where you feel you don't have to be dependent upon God's provision in the future. Does that sound familiar? If so, first realize this is pride. It is therefore a sin issue. Here, here's an example of how this might look. Perhaps God has given you a gift of organization, discipline, and productivity to run a business. You are able to schedule your meetings and manage your workflow well. Suddenly, circumstances change, and you feel you have 16 hours of work to accomplish, but an eight-hour workday to do so. So there are two ways to respond to this. The first response is to say, I just need to squeeze my skills a little bit more. By my cleverness, I can rearrange things. I can find the magical combination of productivity and scheduling and get everything running as good and as peaceful as I had it. I just need to figure it out and then I'll be able to do 16 hours of work in an eight-hour day. The second response is to pray. God, I don't know how to approach this. Help me. Help me to have your understanding of what it means to have a productive day. Give me wisdom to know and adopt your definition of success, not mine or the world's. You have given me skill and called me to work with diligence as if for you and not the approval of man. Help me to do that today. In your goodness and sovereignty, you've only given me eight hours of light today to work. And so I know that will be enough to accomplish your goals for today. Your goals, not mine. Let me submit to your plan for today and see it as good and not impose on this day what I think it should look like. Protect me from the temptation to believe that I have failed if I work for your standard and not mine or the world's. Amen. You see the difference? Faith's everywhere in the second response. Faith is nowhere in the first. In the first scenario, ultimate trust is in your own skills and strength. In the second scenario, ultimate trust is in God's promises of provision, His goodness and sovereignty. This doesn't mean you sit on your hands, but what this does mean is that you recognize that your success is ultimately dependent not on you and your strength, but God. Furthermore, and this again, as I've said, this is one that I uh, wrestle with, the reason that is most difficult for me, but one, two verses which also help me uh, with this reason, Romans 14, 23, anything that does not proceed from faith is sin, and Hebrews eleven six. without faith it is impossible to please God. So as I've said, as you consider those two lines of reasoning, which one had faith? Any faith. And which one was filled with it? But let's assume you are familiar with the promises regarding God's protection and provision and you don't desire to act primarily dependent upon your own strength. Then the, perhaps the third and last reason that your circumstances seem bigger then God is, more is because your circumstances seem more dangerous, oppressive, and real to your perception than God seems powerful, sovereign, and attentive to you. Let me repeat that. Perhaps you are anxious and fearful because your circumstances seem more dangerous, oppressive, and real to you than God seems powerful, sovereign, and attentive to you. 
Stated differently, you fear your circumstances more than you fear God. You trust in the power of your circumstances more than you trust in the power of God. You have a greater estimation of the threat that your current circumstances present to you than your estimation that the promises of God which would see you through those circumstances. And, and though the, the last one is, is very common, the last reason I spoke of, I think that this might be the, the hardest of the reasons to wrestle with. Because what are you supposed to do if you, just, if, if you find yourself in this situation um, where the circumstances facing you just seems more real than the power of God? I, I have four things I want to talk through. First, recognize that you lack faith and repent. Please read Mark 9:22 through 24 with me. It'll be on the screen. In this passage, a father whose son was being afflicted by an evil spirit came to Jesus and asked him to heal his son. Let's start in verse 22. And the father said, And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If I can. All things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. Jesus rebukes this man because he is questioning whether or not Jesus has the power to overcome the man's need. If you are questioning if God has the power to do something, then aren't you doubting whether or not he is in fact sovereign God? Do you think he is at the mercy of your circumstance? But we see here the correct response. The man immediately repents, crying out, I believe, help my unbelief. If you find that you are lacking faith, repent and ask God to give you more faith. God did not turn this man away with his imperfect faith. This man with imperfect faith, when confronted with his sin, repented and asked for help and more faith, and God responded to his cry. Jesus didn't send this man away. He responded. And this should inform our response. The second piece of advice I would have is, what else, or what, rather, what else should we do when we find our circumstances more than we fear the power of God? I would suggest bolster your confidence in the Word of God. And that's why last week we covered the topics we did, so that you may have confidence that the words you hold in your hand are not just the thoughts of corruptible men, but the very Word of God, the inspired, inerrant, powerful, and all-sufficient Word of God. The last thing I would recommend if you find that you fear your circumstances more than you fear the power of God is this. Stop exalting your feelings, personal experience, and circumstances over the Word of God. And this is a hard point to wrestle through. I get that. And it is another reason why I spent so much time last week trying to bolster your confidence and the Word of God over your own circumstances and feelings, even when those feelings seem well-intentioned or a part of who uh, you proclaim to be, your self-proclaimed identity. Rather than belabor this point further, I'll just point to one verse, uh, 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5, and it'll be on the screen. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take, thought every, take every thought captive to obey Christ. Whose thoughts do you encounter the most? Yeah, he got it. I'm serious. Whose thoughts do you encounter the most? Yours. You encounter, the main thoughts you think of are yours. So what is this verse telling you? That you are to take every thought captive. That is primarily a command that the thoughts you need to examine the most and catch the most and compare to Scripture the most are your thoughts. Scripture says that one of the primary ways which we are commanded to wage war is we take thoughts, our thoughts, captive to obey Christ. The world will tell you, to thine own self be true and live your truth. We as Christians are told there is objective truth outside of yourself because God has declared it and you are to submit your own thoughts and your own feelings to his declaration. So I'll just ask, do you have a wartime mentality like this? Do you critically examine your own thoughts and compare them to Scripture? And as we saw last week, Scripture would commend you if you do. 
perhaps it would be helpful to walk through what this might look like. Because for a lot of people, this is a foreign concept. You've never been told, you know, examine your, your thoughts. So, um, so, so, okay, so the scenario is this, uh, you've just woken up. You haven't gone to work or gotten the kids yet. You would like to spend some time in prayer or scripture. And this thought pops into your head. You can't spend time in prayer or study the Word right now. You don't have time. If you don't spend every second trying to knock things off your to-do list, you won't get done everything that you need to get done today, and it will snowball and be worse tomorrow. First of all, I said this thought pops into your head. Where did it come from? That thought came from the flesh or the enemy, but frequently if you aren't on guard, you don't realize that. You critically accept it. But if we fight like Jesus fought, we say, it is written, God will provide for my every need according to his riches and glory. It is written, God's strength is made perfect in my weakness. It is written that I am to work today, not for the pleasure of men, but to work heartily as if for God. Therefore, the success of today is not found in meeting an arbitrary threshold that I have given myself. It is written that I am not to be anxious about my life, but rather seek first the kingdom and, and his righteousness and all these other things will be added to me, and therefore, in light of these truths, you are to conclude my provision is not di di primarily dependent upon the strength of my arm or the power of my intellect, but in my Father, and so I will trust Him and seek Him first today, and then I will go about the rest of my tasks. And then you do it. Your faith is demonstrated by then how you proceed throughout the day. We see that from James 1. Um, and and uh, we see that from the book of James, that, that faith is revealed by, by the action it informs. But Jonathan, you may ask, what if the anxiety comes back in 10 minutes? Well, then you do all of this again until you see the way of escape. For Scripture says in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your strength, but with the temptation will also provide you a way to endure it. He will give you a way of escape. He promises. The last thing I'd recommend on dealing with this reason for why we doubt is a thought exercise I've frequently engaged in and have recommended to many, and that is to walk through in your mind what happens if the worst, if what you perceive to be the worst, comes to pass. And I think this exercise is useful to, for two reasons. First, it can help you identify if you've made something an idol in your life, if perhaps you've taken a good gift of God and turned it into God. And this exercise looks like this. Is there something in your life you ask yourself this. Is there something in your life other than Jesus that if God said, I'm taking that away from you, that it would cause you to believe God was unjust, unloving, or unkind? Your, your dreams or your goals, your children, your marriage, your singleness, your career, your mind, your physical strength, your health. All of these are good and valuable gifts which are, we are commanded to steward well, but Scripture says there is one pearl of great price, one ultimate treasure that satisfies above all else, and that is God. This was an exercise I had to go through a lot when I was in law school. I knew from the time that I was in the third grade I wanted to be an attorney. And every course I took my whole life was very easy for me until I got to law school. And suddenly this thing which I derived so much affirmation from so much praise from, stopped being affirming. I was struggling with self-worth because I wasn't at the top of my class anymore. It forced me to ask, what are you deriving your ultimate joy and satisfaction from, Jonathan? What's your identity in? And this forced me to go through this exercise. Jonathan, you've had this goal for 15 years. If God told you tomorrow, this isn't for you, I'm taking it away from you. I will make you fail if you proceed, but you will get me. Would you be okay with that? And it took a long time to wrestle through that thought before I could say yes. But it helped me see that I'd made an idol out of it. And that's part of, part of the first reason I think this exercise is helpful. So, so if you think you may have turned a good thing into a God thing, think through where would you be tomorrow if God said, I'm taking it away? And the second reason I think this exercise is useful is because it can fortify you so that when the winds of trial and pain and difficulty come against you, you've already settled in your mind what you will do. I believe that was Paul's uh, invitation uh, in the last verse of Romans chapter 8. He's saying, look, 
We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered in this life. So what? We are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. I believe he's saying this and encourages us to walk through this thought with him in order to disarm the threats of the world. It's like he's saying, what's the worst that can happen? All they can do is kill you. Then you get Jesus. And this is explicitly what he testifies to in Philippians 1.21 when he says, for, to me, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Earlier I said there were two passages which best illustrate what it means to be more than conquerors in the face of terrible circumstances. And the first was Daniel, but the second was this passage, Philippians 1.21. Do you see the only options if this verse is true? Either the world won't kill you, in which case you are able to continue living for the glory of God and serving Him and advancing the kingdom, or the worst the world can do is kill you, in which case you get Jesus face to face, your pearl of great price, in whose presence there is pleasure forevermore and fullness of joy. This is what it means to be more than conquerors in the face of slaughter. Even if our enemies do their absolute worst to us, even if our circumstances descend as low as they can go, we still win. In that day, I can say with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, I believe God will save me from your hand, O king. But even if he doesn't, I get Jesus. Fullness of joy. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter unto rest. Therefore, I will not bow to you, O king, or worship your idol. Okay, take a breath. Um, we've gone through the passage. We've examined and attempted to draw out its primary meaning for us. I've presented common reasons on why we don't respond in the way Jesus says we must and how we can identify why we don't and repent. We've walked through practical ways we can identify idols in our lives and practically what it can look like to fight by faith when tempted to be anxious or fearful. So I want to finish our time by answering why. Why do you do all of this? This seems exhausting. This seems exhausting to daily be on guard and critically examine my thoughts in light of Scripture. It seems exhausting to daily fight the lies of the world, the flesh, and the enemy with the truths of Scripture. This seems exhausting to, to consider if I'd be okay if God was t told me He was taking away my dreams, my spouse, my singleness, my children, my job, etc. But the reason I'm saying we should get into these habits now on a daily basis is to prepare for the day that the worst happens. Well, let me repeat. The reason we should, we should, we should take steps now to... Uh, get into these habits now on a daily basis is to prepare for the day that the worst might happen. For Job, it was a lifetime of quiet trusting in God that enabled him to say after everything had been taken away, the Lord has given and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. Brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you into the daily habit of trusting more in the power of God and His promises over the power and promises of trial so that you will be ready when you face tribulation and suffering and famine and nakedness and danger and sword that Paul was talking about in our main passage. And if you haven't gotten into the day-to-day -day habit of doing this, I'm concerned that you won't be prepared when a state official comes to your door with civil or criminal charges because you hold to a biblical view of sexuality or gender and you dared to share it publicly. You won't be prepared for when you suddenly lose your job because your employer found out you actually follow Jesus. You won't be prepared for when the doctor says the baby you are pregnant with has a condition that gives them only a 1% chance of surviving to birth and they look at you like you're crazy when you say you don't want to terminate. And that last one was my wife's and my situation. In the fall of last year, my wife and I found out we were having a baby girl because the doctors conducted a test which only showed one chromosome. This condition is called Turner Syndrome. We learned that 99% of babies with this condition were either miscarried or died during delivery. And we were told by the doctors uh, that they had a very high level of confidence that the test was correct. We believed God would heal our baby. But we were resolved that even if he didn't, we would not bow down to the wisdom of the world which said it would be wise to kill our unborn daughter and then fast forward to three weeks ago, we, we had um, Henrietta Ure Ellis uh, born healthy with no sign of Turner Syndrome. We firmly believe God did heal her. 
This last week, my wife went for a follow-up appointment with her doctor who gave us that original result. And in that conversation, Becca and the doctor were able to talk about the fact that this was a miracle. And Becca was able to give all credit and honor to God for this miraculous healing in this conversation. And that, I believe, is what it means to be more than a conqueror. God using the very trial and pain and suffering and then using it to advance His kingdom by proclaiming His faithfulness and goodness and power. Continual decisions each day to trust God and not be fearful despite very real and scary circumstances around us. Pray that your circumstances change. I'm not saying don't. For we see James say, you have not because you ask not. Pray that your child is healed, but that's no guarantee that she will be or that she will stay healthy. This last week, Etta had a spiking fever and we called the doctor and they said, take her to the NICU where they did a spinal tap and had her under 24-hour observation and did three blood infusions. And as I wrote this sermon, I was hoping and praying that we would have her home by the time I deliver it. And by the grace of God, she was released from the hospital about four hours ago. But we were put back in the same position that we were three weeks earlier. We were praying for healing and comfort and peace. And I believed God would heal her but even if he doesn't, I will trust that he is good, that he is merciful, that he is sovereign. And that is the daily fight that each of us are called to as Christians. The daily fight. We as Christians are called not to be ruled by our anxiety or fear, though our circumstances constantly change because our hope and our faith is placed in God and he does not change. Let me repeat that. We as Christians are called to not be ruled by anxiety or fear, though our circumstances constantly change because our hope and our faith is placed in God and He does not change. So when all around us is good or bad, we can continue to say, I trust God and I believe He will deliver me. But even if He doesn't, I will still trust in Him. You've been very patient and attentive, so thank you and please bear with me just a very little bit longer. The first time I was able to see Etta in the hospital this past week was Thursday, and it is a terrible thing to see such a small baby with so many wires and tubes in her. But then that night we went home, and our other daughter Piper woke up in the middle of the night, and I went back in to put her back to sleep, and I, I love singing to her. And so as I was trying to calm her down and put her back to sleep, it occurred to me that one of the hymns that I was singing to her demonstrated perfectly the point of our main passage. What does it mean to be more than a conqueror? And, and, and so I wanted to share with you the story behind that hymn today, even though I'm sure many of you may already know it. The lyrics to the hymn, It Is Well With My Soul, were written by a man named Horatio Spafford in 1870. He and his wife Anna lost their four-year-old son Horatio Jr. to scarlet fever. The next year, most of Horatio's investments and livelihood were lost when a fire devastated Chicago and destroyed many properties he owned. Two years later, the family decided to take a vacation to England. Horatio was delayed uh, for business reasons, and so Anna and the four remaining children went ahead. The boat they were on collided with another ship and sank. Anna survived, but all four of their daughters, ages 11, 9, 5, and 2, drowned. Anna was rescued and reached England where she immediately sent a telegram to Horatio and said, and all it said was saved alone. Horatio boarded a boat and went to join his wife and when his ship passed over the spot where his daughters drowned, he penned the lyrics that have become this beloved hymn. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well. It is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin not in part but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. And Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. Brothers and sisters, this is what it looks like to be more than conquerors. Though we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Because no matter what the world or this enemy have for you, 
If you are a Christian, then nothing can separate you from the love of God. We can lose everything else, but we still have Jesus, and so we win. Let's pray. Father, you have said in your word that in your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. We believe it. Whatever people have come in here with, whether it's mourning or sorrow or trial, you are not surprised by it, and you are greater than it. You are bedrock, though everything else is just turmoil and and a hurricane of change. Let us look to you and be grounded and held steadfastly that even if we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered, even if we are to endure all of this, we will answer the king, no, we will not bow down to your idol or worship your gods with you. And even if they kill us, or take away our dreams, or our children, or health. Or if we lose all of it, we have Jesus, so we win. Help us to hold fast to the truth of that, and to trust you and see you as good and powerful and sovereign in everything that we do, and to practice it daily. Let us leave here with the mind and heart and hands of Christ, and so advance the kingdom. We love you, Father. It's in your Son's name. Amen.